The Conversationalist is a podcast about the history of science from the 19th century to today, brought to you by the Constructing Scientific Communities Project. All right, let's get this party started. In the 19th century, many scientific institutions hosted what were known as conversazione, evening gatherings to showcase science and the arts. These events ranged from the outrageously raucous to the excruciatingly boring, but they were united in bringing together experts and amateurs, professional scientists, and the general public for lectures, displays, performances, and, of course, conversation. In this podcast, we invite you to join our version of these classic Victorian affairs, our very own cocktail party with experts on the history of science. Conversazione were about information, but they were also very much about entertainment. So we ask our guests in each episode to regale us with a story about the history of science that will captivate us for a drink or two. At the end of each episode, we'll check in with another important contributor to the podcast, our bartender, for a recipe, a story, or a bit of history about the food and drink that so often accompany a good conversation. Welcome to our cocktail party conversation here. Um, I'm the host for this episode. I'm Kira Allman, and I'm the media and communications officer for the Constructing Scientific Communities Project at the University of Oxford. And uh, my name is Keith Moore. I'm the librarian at the Royal Society. And the Royal Society is an affiliated organization with this project. Well, thank you so much for joining me for this uh, episode of The Conversationalist. Keith, cheers. Cheers. Excellent. And we're actually here at the Royal Society today to record this episode of The Conversationalist. And can you tell us a little bit about what the Royal Society was like in the 19th century? This is a historic scientific institution. What was going on here in the 19th century? Well, uh, the Royal Society had been around a long time, of course. It had been founded in 1660. Uh, in the 19th century, I think they spent a, a lot of the early period recovering from the presidency of Sir Joseph Banks. So Banks had been uh, 42 years president. He was the longest serving president. When he died, in 1820. Uh, the Royal Society uh, really wanted to change the way it was organised, reform itself, become more of a professional organisation. Of course, science itself was becoming a profession properly. Um, so by the 1840s, the Society had uh, changed its constitution in such a way that elections to the fellowship were no longer uh, the province of people who were vaguely interested in natural history. But um, you had to be a published scientist, a recognised figure in your field before you could become a fellow of the Royal Society. Now that took a generation to work its way through the organisation. Uh, but by the end of the 19th century, it was a more recognisably modern place as a scientific institution. Interesting. And obviously a premise of this podcast is conversazione, these gatherings of uh, professional scientists, sometimes people from the general public, uh, at scientific institutions, much like the Royal Society. Did the Royal Society host conversazione back in the 19th century? Um, yes, the Royal Society did. It, it had 
begun as an activity that was specific to the president. So uh, Banks used to, to uh, have social events at, at his house um, when uh, the Duke of Sussex was, was president of the Royal Society. Kensington Palace was the venue, so they, they could put on a good posh party. Um, however, of course, that was a very expensive thing to do, and, and presidents after uh, Sussex decided that they didn't want to pay for all this celebration uh, and therefore the Royal Society took it on as an activity so they began to have properly organizational conversaciones where they would not just provide refreshments and conversation but they would exhibit some science as well. Now um, much as I would like to characterize this as, as a public activity of course it wasn't uh, it was very much aimed at the great and the good it was a selected invited audience they would have come into Burlington House to see uh, some of, of the latest science, but uh, very often other things besides. Um, so they were next door to the Royal Academy, of course, so they would exhibit some art as well, quite probably. Uh, the conversaciones divided into what was called a, a, a black knight, which was the, the uh, fellows coming in their, in their attire, their, their, their black tie. Uh, but they also had a ladies' night in which the, the, the wives and daughters, you know, uh, couldn't possibly be interested in science, but just maybe, you know. Uh, so they would, uh, they, they would come as well. Um, so uh, it, became, it, it grew into a, a kind of a, a social event in the calendar, and so in, in, in the same way that uh, the Royal Academy's painting exhibitions, which are still, of course, continuing the summer exhibitions, uh, the Royal Society had an equivalent to scientific uh, exhibit, or more than one, actually, May and June. Uh, so this was part of the social scene around Burlington House, which is quite a vibrant place to be at the time. Um, one of my favourite Royal Society documents is, is uh, Walter White's diary. Walter White was a kind of a junior official at the Royal Society in the 19th century. Uh, and, and it's a fun thing. I, I rather like it because he is constantly uh, meeting great scientists, people like Charles Darwin. Uh, and you, you, you're expecting great things of the diary. Well, what is he going to talk to Darwin about? And it's something completely trivial. He, 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 doesn't, he doesn't actually talk to Darwin about anything interesting at all. Uh, and that, that's a kind of a theme in the diary. You know, you, you keep expecting great things of it and, and nothing very much happens. Uh, but but these sorts of figures are around the Royal Society. So John Ruskin came to, to hear a paper, and quite often you will get these figures at the conversazioni. So it's not just the scientific community they're trying to interest. Uh, Rudyard Kipling, for example, famously uh, came to a conversazione, and he wrote about it in his novel Kim, uh, in, in which he basically says that they're terribly boring events. You know? <laughs> um, I'm sure some of them were. I, I'm, I'm, Quite likely, yes, that the photographs of the period do look quite grim. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the, the content was interesting and very, very varied. So not just a scientific uh, exhibition as we'd expect today, but, but far more eclectic than that. I think, you know, you, you've described it perfectly. The Royal Society still maintained this very elite reputation. Was there any real citizen science, for instance, going on in relation to the Royal Society? Anything that we would conceive of as citizen science today? Um, very little in the 19th century, in the early part, certainly. In the 18th century, uh, 
quite often anyone would be invited into the Royal Society to attend a meeting who had a good story to tell. So if you had a strong man, for instance, or a flea circus, you might well be invited into the Royal Society to give a demonstration in the early 18th century. But the, the, this idea of professionalism uh, kind of put, put a stop to all that. Um, but uh, there was one major event in the latter half of the 19th century that caught everyone's attention. This was the eruption of the Krakatoa volcano. Uh, now this was a worldwide event and therefore hugely significant for the world of science but everyone got involved. Uh, and the Royal Society did something rather unusual because it was a worldwide event and because they wanted to gather information about it. They put an advertisement in the Times newspaper and elsewhere uh, soliciting observations. So this wasn't this, these weren't observations by professional scientists, although they wanted those as well, uh, but, but general observers too, people who had been close to, to the volcano, perhaps ships captains, missionaries, anyone who'd seen anything unusual around the globe. Uh, and it sort of feeds into the conversaciones because people, of course, painted pictures very famously of, of the sunsets afterwards, and these were exhibited at the conversaciones. Uh, but really what they wanted was, was a, a massive information that they could sift through to try and determine something about the global impact of this volcanic event. And this sounds like an unusual thing for the Royal Society to do. Was this the first time that this had ever happened? I, th I think pretty much yes. Uh, and uh, it does mark a shift in the Royal Society's territory, I think. Um, so after Krakatoa, they, they seem to be slightly more relaxed about interacting with the public, especially in displayed signs, but in other areas too. Uh, therefore, you know, you can, you can characterize the whole of the 19th century as a movement towards professionalism in science in terms of the fellowship but also the fellowship getting slightly more relaxed towards the latter half of the 19th century in dealing with the public and trying to, to tell stories about science. Yeah, I mean, to me, it sounds like th there are definite parallels with the way that institutions solicit information from the public today via social media. You know, if there's a major news event going on, often the BBC will ask for people to write in, email in, send a tweet, use a hashtag so that they can see what's going on. And this was kind of a 19th century version of this. You know, tell us about what you saw, if you saw something. It was, and it just was at the correct period when telecommunications were getting good enough that you could do this. So in the, in the 17th century, you had a republic of letters. By the uh, back end of the 19th century, you had telegraphy. You know, you, you could report on something and get news to London very quickly. Uh, you had steamships, you had railways. So it was becoming a different kind of world because of the technologies involved. Uh, and it's, it's a kind of a mini revolution that allowed you to gather information rather more quickly than maybe a, gener a generation or two before. So on the way in, I think I noticed that there's a display in the hallway about volcanoes. Is Krakatoa featured in there? It is, and uh, maybe we should uh, just go and have a look. Yeah, let's go take a look.
So uh, the Krakatoa explosion was a uh, Krakatoa, uh, Krakatau was an island, a volcanic island in the East Indies uh, near Sumatra. And the explosion, uh, when it did erupt in uh, the early 1880s, was catastrophic. I mean, it blew millions of cubic tons of, of dust into the atmosphere. The sound uh, was likened to the earth ringing like a bell. There were tidal waves sweeping across oceans. So it was a major global event. Uh, and we talked about telecommunications a little while ago and, and it was an event that could be reported. There had of course been previously very large uh, volcanic explosions, uh, most famously when uh, the novel Frankenstein was, was written. That was famously the year without a summer because of another volcanic eruption and that's why Shelley and Byron and all those people were, were reined in in their Swiss villa and therefore had to, had to start writing the, these great works. Uh, but of course uh, nobody knew what had happened because the, the communications weren't in place to report it properly. Uh, uh, Krakatoa was the one that um, the Telegraph was in place for. They could get reports on precisely what had happened and so that they knew about this and they wanted to record information and gather information about it. So uh, here we are in front of the volcano display out in the corridor. What are we looking at here Keith? Well, it's a general display about uh, the Royal Society's interest in volcanoes, beginning really, I guess, from Sir William Hamilton and his work in Vesuvius while he was uh, over there in a dipl diplomatic post. Uh, and so we have some 18th century uh, volcanoes here, some very famous ones. Uh, but the, the, the key thing in terms of the 19th century is the Krakatoa material, and particularly the Royal Society's report on the eruption, and here it is, published in 1888, uh, and that really sifted through the evidence for what had happened during the eruption and uh, how it had uh, played out across the globe. So it has things like charts of tidal waves, uh, the acoustical effects of the volcano, how far away it could be heard. Uh, and this is all based on the, the witness uh, information that they gathered. And you can see some of that witness information here in two forms. So there's a letter here uh, from Zanzibar from a woman uh, who had uh, recorded what she had seen on the coast coastline there in 1884 uh, and she talks about skeletons being washed up on the African coast uh, and also here a watercolour and uh, this is uh, taken in December 1883 uh, on the Guildford Downs and you can see the various optical effects that were observed uh, because of the amount of uh, atmospheric dust that had been thrown up uh, by the eruption. Uh, so this is the kind of information that the Royal Society was trying to pull together uh, to uh, give to uh, George James Simmons in this case one of the editors of the volume and uh, they, they uh, produced this huge tome trying to capture exactly what had happened. So this very large volume that I'm looking at here, this is uh, heavily crowdsourced. Yes, yep, absolutely right. And, um, and reference as well because the society would uh, acknowledge where the original information had, had come from. Quite often it's footnoted and buried and away in there. Uh, and, and all manner of people uh, made observations. I guess the most famous one was uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins, the poet. 
we sent a couple of letters into nature observing the colours that were shown in the sunsets that he'd observed uh, and, and that gets noted in the report there. So a uh, very varied bunch of people and um, quite a key document in the Royal Society's history I think. The page that it's open to right now, it, these look like hand-painted or hand-drawn illustrations? Yeah, they're, they're prints of some of the illustrations uh, that were um, uh, displayed at the Royal Society's Conversaciones. So uh, this is uh, the Royal Society uh, using the material it had to hand. Since the Royal Society was collecting so much information from the general public at this time, um, does the Royal Society keep a record of that content? You know, are there are there collections in the Royal Society archives now of this crowdsourced citizen science material? Yes, indeed. So uh, we don't just have the draft manuscripts of, of the report, but we have all the original correspondence that was sent into the Royal Society as part of the, this great endeavour. So I think we should go and have a look at some of that. That sounds great. Let's do it. These are some of Joseph Banks' papers here, some good 19th century stuff too, correspondence on terrestrial magnetism. Great. Uh, and further along, so this is all manuscripts general. Uh, so Edward Sabine's correspondence there. In the next row we have uh, Joseph Lama's correspondence, John Lubbock's correspondence, and John Herschel, one of the great 19th century figures, we have his correspondence. Uh, but we're going to go along to the end here in these rather anonymous blue boxes and have a look for some Krakatoa material. Sounds good. Here we go. There we go. Take this to a shelf and have a look at yeah. some content. So here we have um, just one box of, of many on the Krakatoa correspondence. Let's see what we have here. So this is MS 516. This particular file is on the Indian and Burmese coasts uh, and around the Gulf of Siam. So these are letters uh, sent to the Royal Society's Krakatoa Committee and uh, they are on all manner of topics. So some of them will be meteorological uh, records, some of them will be uh, notices from ship's captains about um, tides and waves, all manner of things. So this is an extract of a letter from Lieutenant Leslie R.N. on board uh, an Orient steamer. And this is uh, from 1883. So on December 2nd, 1883, uh, coming home from Australia, and he gives the, the longitude and latitude, uh, we commenced to pass through large quantities of pumice uh, and occasional floating tuffer. Uh, this continued for two days. So this wow. steamship is, is merrily steaming along the ocean. And, and for two days, it's steaming through a, a sea of pumice from the, the volcano. Uh, at first, it was like dust on the water, gradually increasing in size until uh, some of the lumps must have weighed several pounds. So this is the wow. huge ejected material from uh, the volcano. This must have been a very surreal experience. Yeah, and, and you can understand why there was a, a fascination with this. It wasn't just the sunsets. There were lots of the f other phenomena that were uh, people just hadn't seen before, clearly of interest to scientists, but at the same time, uh, it really caught the imagination of, of the general public. 
Absolutely. So lots of other ships here. So this is a ship owner society letter yeah. uh, giving. You just, can see from the letterhead. Yeah, that's right. So this is from Liverpool, in fact. So the, the ship is presumably docked, and there's a little snippet of information there. And uh, just coming further in, here we are. Here's another bark. It's docked in, in Calcutta. This is 26th of November, 1884. Uh, so in continuation of my uh, other letter, read the drift of pumice supposed to be ejected from Krakatoa. I, I now add that on the 27th and 28th of September last, uh, the first portions uh, were cast offshore uh, at looks like Durban. Yeah, Durban Natal. So this is, this is an observation that uh, material was being washed as far as South Africa. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, it really, it's global. And these letters are really coming in from everywhere. Yeah, so this is just one uh, geographical area. But you can see if you just flip through these files. Ah, so we have some observations on twilight on here. Twilight, so this, yeah. these are twilight effects uh, by um, uh, Dr. Kelman. So he's taken the trouble to not just send a postcard or two, uh, but write, uh, oh gosh, this looks like uh, 43 more pages, uh, 50 pages on uh, twilight effects and his observations. Uh, and it looks like from, uh, oh, it says, during my sojourn in Spain. So he's, wow. he's in Spain and uh, takes the trouble to write this huge paper simply on the twilight effects. Yeah, this entire folder is just Dr. Kelman's yep. observations. Uh, so this is the uh, Pacific coasts of North and South America. Uh, so here we have uh, the Hawaiian government survey in Honolulu in wow. 1884. Uh, to uh, Simmons. Uh, so each of these folders is a, a different region? That's right, they organize them geographically so presumably so that they could track uh, the effects uh, at distance from the, the center of the event. So here we have Canada and the United States. Do you have any sense of how many letters and reports, individual accounts, the Royal Society has on record of this single event? Uh, many thousands, and particularly because, as you can see here, they took the trouble to take press cuttings as well. So we have boxes and boxes of press cuttings, uh, not just from the Syrian scientific press, but also from newspapers, uh, from magazines. So this is very much project-related yeah. material. And this is from, goodness me, this looks like a, a Netherlands newspaper, but being printed out in the East Indies somewhere. And there's, I don't know how your Dutch is, but mine's, mine's not too it's great. It's not so great. Uh, <laughs> uh, but again, uh, they've, they've kept it because it's, it's a report on something to do with the phenomena around Krakatoa. And they, they recorded uh, and kept even uh, things like poems that have been composed really? uh, around Krakatoa. So you do get a, a huge miscellaneous mix of things. They didn't use all of it in the report of course, but it's terrific to have uh, such, such a substantial archival record of what people were seeing, feeling and reporting. A really interesting combination of science and the arts then here in the archive as well. That, that's right, yes, and uh, it's the sort of thing that, that we get very excited about today. I'm sure the people who collected it were doing it for very pragmatic purposes, and uh, you do wonder if they thought uh, people like myself would be getting very excited about it uh, uh, several, several decades later.
this material from the archive, what can we gain from having this in the historical record within the, the Royal Society? Of course, scholars, historians particularly, are very interested in this kind of material, and it's very pertinent to the, the Oxford project. Um, however, of course, our scientists, our fellows, uh, enjoy this kind of information, not just for the data that is contained in here, which is still useful, but to see the, the history and background of their professions, if they happen to be volcanologists. Uh, and of course, because this material came in from all over the world, it would be very nice to give it back to the world, so we're running digitization projects so that uh, hopefully in the fullness of time uh, anybody say in Zanzibar who really wanted to see what had been happening around this part of the world at this particular time could look on the Royal Society's website and, and there it would be. Today in the 21st century we have a clear sense that science is very international and it's very global but um, we don't often think of science historically as being that way because of just the difference in communicative technology that was available at the time but this archive clearly demonstrates that science was extremely global and international. And was right from the beginning when the Royal Society was created. It was international in outlook. It recruited its fellows from all over the world. It solicited information from other scientists at that period in the form of lists. But they always had in mind that uh, science was an international activity and that's still part of the Royal Society's DNA. Uh, if someone listening to this podcast wanted to use any of the material or see any of the material that we've taken a look at today at the Royal Society, can they do that? Is there a way of doing that? Yes, the, the library and the archives are open to anybody who cares to use them. Uh, so if you have an interest in history of science, if you just want to look at material that's really fascinating, uh, you'd be very welcome to use the library here. Thank you so much for showing me all of this fascinating material from the depths of the Royal Society archive. This has been a very, very interesting conversation. You're welcome. We, we normally don't allow champagne glasses in here as well, but perhaps we should do another clink. Yeah, maybe we should. Cheers. Cheers. Well, I think it's time to throw it over to our bartender for this episode, who is joining us from back in Oxford. Chris, would you like to introduce yourself? I'm Chris Thorigood. I'm the Head of Science and Public Engagement here at Oxford Botanic Garden. So Chris, on previous episodes, we've talked with the founders of the Oxford Artisan Distillery about 19th century cocktails and gin specifically. Would it have been important to know something about botany if you wanted to get into the cocktail business back in the 19th century? Yes, it, it, it would be. Um, it would be important uh, because um, the combination of the botanicals um, that are used to make spirits and, and gin in particular are very very important so that that uh, crucial balance between acidity and sweetness um, which is the, the secret to, to making a good drink um, you'd need to understand the different flavors of, of the botanicals that you're using and and to be able to refine those flavors um, by having those different combinations and and different botanicals and even today people are exploring using new botanicals in, in making uh, drinks such as gin um, and of course there are there are uh, plants and botanicals that you'd want not to use because some, many of them are toxic or, or poisonous so, so that knowledge would have been fundamental to, to making these drinks. If one were strolling around the Oxford Botanic Garden today what plants might one encounter that could be used in cocktails? Yeah, so Oxford Botanic Garden is, is a relatively small garden, um, but for such a small size, we have a, a huge diversity of species. We actually have over 4,300 species um, here at the garden. Um, and we have uh, collections in glass and we have hardy collections as well. 
Uh, so the garden was originally founded um, in 1621, nearly 400 years ago, as a physic garden. So the plants were used for medicinal research and we still have um, many medicinal plants today. And if you were to take a stroll around the garden, some of the interesting plants that you might see that we could explore using in the future um, would be some of the gentians, uh, the citrus, um, so lemons, limes, oranges, for example. Citrus peel is, is commonly used um, as a botanical in gin. Angelica, uh, we grow wormwood as well, which is used um, to make other spirits such as absinthe. Um, so uh, we have lots of interesting plants that, that could be used uh, to make uh, some of these drinks. Um, interestingly also we have a, a very ancient tree, um, Taxus baccata, a yew tree, which was planted in 1645 by Jacob Bobart. That's our oldest tree here at the Botanic Garden. The yew tree is actually a relative of the juniper, um, and juniper is, is of course the, one of the main constituents of, of making gin. Uh, gin has to have juniper in it, and, it, and it's the, the predominant flavour. Uh, we talk about uh, juniper berries, they're not actually berries, but they're minute cones, so a little bit like pine cones. Um, and that's no coincidence, because that's why you have that sort of um, fresh, sort of assertive pine-like taste that we always associate with, with gin. Um, that's because it, it is a relative of the, of the pines. So maybe if you're listening to this podcast and you make a visit to the Oxford Botanic Garden, you can create your own botanical beverage tour based on what you've heard today. You know what to look for now. Thanks so much for serving up some new information for us, Chris. <laughs> it's my pleasure. <laughs> The Conversationalist is a podcast from the Constructing Scientific Communities Project, funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. It is based at the Universities of Oxford and Leicester in partnership with the Natural History Museum, the Hunterian Museum at the Royal College of Surgeons, and the Royal Society. For our most recent podcasts, subscribe on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud. 